morning, church. We are gathered under one name, and one name only, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. He is worthy of all worship and praise and honor and glory. And so uh, let's jump into his word this morning. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, as we've been going through Romans for months now, we have made it to the application part of the book. Romans chapter 12, we'll be picking up where we left off last week as you're getting your Bibles and getting ready for that. Let me go ahead and make a few announcements for you. Uh, it is October, in case uh, you can't tell by the cool in the air. It's October, which means it's time for pumpkin spice. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the announcement. The announcement is it means it's time for trunk or treat. And so if you would like to participate in trunk or treat, we have a sign-up sheet out there. And uh, I'll be honest with you, not a lot of you have signed up yet. I know you're scared. I know you're worried about what you're going to dress up as, but don't let that hinder you from what God has for you, okay, all right, so what we need to do is we need to fill up that parking lot on October the 30th, and we, uh, we expect there to be a lot of people coming through here that day, and it's just a way to share love in our community, so we'll fill up that parking lot, so if you now feel like I've twisted your arm enough, you can sign up for uh, hosting a trunk out there on October 30th, and then the following weeks, we're going to have a men's meeting and a women's meeting, and so there's a lot of things that will be coming up over the next a uh, few Sundays, so be on the lookout for that. Um, if you're turning there, I want to read where we uh, started last week. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we enter into this chapter, we see the transition, the therefore. Why is the therefore, therefore? Well, all the things that Paul has mentioned up to this point, how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and what God has done on our behalf for salvation. And if we have received salvation, then our lives then are to be presented to God. We are at his disposal for whatever he would like to do for his glory, because that is our logical worship. Our logical worship is to say, well, you've given your entire self for us, so I will give my entire self to you. I will take up my cross, and I will follow you daily. And in order to do that, we need to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. As we talked about being conformed, we understand that there is a world system out there that it's hard to put your finger on, but the world system is trying to conform us into a pattern and into a mold that basically is saying that we can find gratification and self-independence apart from God. And it is a sneaky, subtle, ongoing discipling that takes place from the world into the lives and the minds of everyone that says you can live your life to the fullest apart from God when we are created for God and for His glory. It goes completely opposite of what Scripture says. So being conformed by the world, as we said last week, is simply being molded into a person who then perverts their intellectual understanding of who God is to assist themselves towards a self-centered, self-pleasing, self-indulgent, self-concerned, and self-depraved mind and life. It's really a mindset of self. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes asking Timothy to come visit him in Rome. And he says this in, in verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is 
This is the news we get from Paul, that there was one that was a believer. There was one that had given his life to the ministry who said, I'll come alongside you and I will go with you. I'll be a companion with you on the mission field. And at some point, Demas fell in love again with this present world. It's easy for us to fall back in love with the world in so many ways. It can be the subtle disinterest in serving God. It can be a subtle disinterest in saying, you know what, I, I'm tired. I don't know if I want to really put my life on the altar anymore. It can be that we're enticed by the, treasure, the treasures of this world more than we are enticed by the treasures in heaven. That we begin to seek after the things that bring us pleasure here. We might, in fact, be enticed back into the lust of the flesh and forsake the things that God has done in our life because we simply want gratification. It could be that we just become disenchanted with what we thought the Christian life was going to promise. You know, this reminds me of the parable of the soils. There was two soils that are mentioned there. The seed fell on the rocky ground, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Some fall away because of the persecution, the difficulty of being a living sacrifice. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Often we receive the word with joy, but as the things of life begin to creep in, it begins to choke out the things that God wants to produce in our life. So as we get to verse 3, Paul gives us a warning. Picking up here, that there's going to be a warning that we had better humble ourselves with some sober judgment because of how sinful we really are and how we are called to be servants in his kingdom. Because without humility, we will not be a living sacrifice. It, it takes a lot of humility to lay yourself on the altar before God. Without humility, we will not have a transformed mind because we will not be a repentant people. Without humility, we will not be useful in the kingdom because we will simply do our own thing rather than submit to God's thing. I, as I uh, mentioned last week, I gave you a little bit of my testimony as far as how the verses 1 and 2 really played a part in my call in the ministry and how it just kind of made sense. Oh, Christianity's not following rules. Christianity's giving your life to Christ. And as, as I began to read my Bible... You know, I wore that first Bible out. I, I, went, to, I went to UTC as a freshman, and, and uh, I remember <laughs> I had to go. This is overshare. I had to go to this uh, fraternity, and it was basically a college-level show-and-tell, you know. And uh, bring your most important possession that you have, and I took my Bible. And I was like, guys, this is, this is my life right now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm consumed by it. And I was like, and look, it's my first Bible with my name on it. And I was, so, I was so pumped. I wore that Bible out to where I could actually like take portions of it out and just hand it to you. Like, well, here's 2 Timothy. Like, it just fell out the other day. Um, and so I began to seek God's call on my life. And, and embarrassing as it is, I, at some point, there was a guy that had given me voice lessons in high school, and they didn't work. My mom wasted all her money. And... Uh, on that, but he had asked me to help him out at a church in downtown inner city near Dobbs Avenue, Chattanooga. 
and he wanted me to help him on Wednesdays, and he wanted me to sing. And so I can't play an instrument, so I would play a CD and sing along with these five youth that were there. Super awkward. I quickly realized that was not what God had called me to do. Uh, but then as I began to work with students, I began to feel a call to share the Word of God with students, to, to be used in the church to raise up the next generation to know and love Jesus and to fall in love with the Word like I had fallen in love with it. And I remember making a deal with God. All right, God, I don't want to call myself into ministry, right? Because that could be a big no-no. So I'm going to make a deal with you. If you tell this youth pastor to tell me to go into ministry, then I'll do it. And so we were sitting there having a cheeseburger one day. And he put his cheeseburger down. He said, I just feel a strong need to tell you that you should go into student ministry. And so there's my next boom moment. I, I say that to tell you that I may be up here talking about my call in the ministry, but as we're about to read, every single one of us has been called in the ministry. If we have been filled with the Spirit of God and He has saved us by His grace, then He has equipped us with a gift to go and to serve. And so I pray that today, as we get into this word, and I'm about to pray that, that God would reveal to you the call that He has placed on your life for the, His kingdom and for His glory. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you so much for the salvation that we have that is found only in Jesus Christ and that you have not left us alone, but you have filled us with your presence and you've equipped us with your gifting and you've given us this measure of faith so that we could use it for your glory and for your kingdom and for your kingdom's expansion. And I pray right now over the individuals that are listening to these words out of Romans that you, by the prompting of your spirit, would call them to serve, to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you as their reasonable and logical worship. Father, use us for your kingdom. Help us to be humble. Help us to be submissive to your call and your will. And use us in ways that we've never dreamed imaginable for your glory. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy, and I thank you for your forgiveness. We would be nothing without it. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 12, starting in verse 3, I'll read through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. First thing I want you to see is the living sacrifice is unassuming. It's, an, it's a mindset and an attitude that is an unassuming, humble mindset. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment. In fact, part of a renewed mind is having a right understanding of ourselves. It's taking a good, honest, and sober look at ourselves and, and looking at 
who we really are. What are we actually capable of? What has God gifted us with? And what are our talents? And what are we not good at? What, where do we need to be on the lookout? And where do we not need to be on the lookout? In fact, in Galatians 6, 1 through 3, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We are to help those in the body of Christ, in the fellowship to be restored. But also we do that with a humble and gentle attitude, knowing that we too are capable of sinning and falling short just as the, the ones that we're helping do. In fact, we're to have the same mindset of that as Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If we are a living sacrifice, we come to a point of being so humble that we're willing to be obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, that we will pick up our cross and follow after him. This is the mindset of those who are a living sacrifice. It's unassuming. It's, it's a humble, sober judgment of oneself. We must develop this objective eyes. We look at ourselves. We have to be honest with what we're good at and what we're not good at. We have to be honest with ourselves about what we can handle and what we cannot handle. We need to be honest with ourselves about what we struggle with so that we might not fall also into the same temptations. Because if you know what you're tempted with, don't put yourself in a situation that would cause you to be tempted. We need to take an honest look at ourselves, see how God has designed us for His purpose, how He has gifted us with His Spirit, and see what circumstances He's placed us in for His glory. This is the call of every believer, that we would have this humble, unassuming attitude. As Matthew Henry says, we must not say, I am nothing, therefore I will sit still and do nothing. But I am nothing in myself, and therefore I will lay out myself to the utmost in the strength of the grace of Christ. I am nothing in myself. It is Christ in me that allows me to then lay myself on the altar and say, I am completely yours. Use me at your disposal as a living sacrifice. God has indeed designed each of us for the work of ministry. If you'll turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. I love these verses. You would think that these are my favorite verses in all the Bible because I refer to them so often. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which, which you once walked. Let me stop there. Take a sober look at ourselves. We were dead. Spiritually dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world. Let me stop there. You were walking conformed to the pattern of this world following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not only were we dead, not only were we conformed to the pattern of this world, but we were actually following in a disobedient, childlike wrath against God. We were, we were on a disobedient, selfish path, living under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Though you were dead and though you were conformed to the power of the world and though you were disobedient children, you were saved by grace. You were saved by the mercy and love of God and it was nothing that you had done. Take a sober look at yourself. He says, So then in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Taking a sober look at ourselves, we see that we were once dead, that we were once conformed to the pattern of this world, that we were following Satan's course of uh, being disobedient, but God saved us by his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace, and he saved us for a purpose of giving us a measure of faith to be used for his glory and his expanded kingdom. We're all called to ministry. So as the last part of verse 3 says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I don't want you to think that there are some of us who have more faith than others. That's not exactly what that would translate as. The word measure there is where we get the word meter, metron. It's most likely a standard measurement, meaning that we all have this standard measurement of faith that God has saved us with. We all have faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore now he's going to give us diverse gifts for his kingdom. We are the same in Christ. We were once dead, and now we're alive. But we are diverse in community. Every believer is assigned a spiritual gift and a physical resource they need to fulfill their role in the body of Christ. Good works that he designed for you beforehand. So that's exciting. So if you are unassuming, then the next part of being a living sacrifice is being unified. Unified in the body of Christ. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The beauty of the body of Christ is its diversity. As you look around and you see the gathered body of believers, you look around and you see that we are to be a diverse people, gifted in so many different ways, but also unified in Christ. We each have been given distinct personalities, temperaments, histories, abilities, gifts, hobbies, interests, and talents that equip us for a particular set of good works that God has created us to do in his body, the church. No one is like you in the body of Christ. There is no, there is no one who has the same history as you, the same experiences as you, the same, the same uh, temperaments as you, the same personality as you. You can be an identical twin, but there is nobody that looks like you, well, physically, spiritually, looks like you, in the body of Christ because you are uniquely designed and made and gifted in a way that God only can use you for his kingdom.
Therefore, we all have a part to play. Not only have we been given distinct differences, personalities, gifts, abilities, interests, passions, and temperaments, but we are different in order that we would be interdependent on each other communally. You are different for the reason of being interdependent upon one another. God has designed the church to be so different in its diversity that we would need one another to be able to accomplish what God has called us to do. Meaning we need others in the body, and others in the body need us. Paul uses this idea of the body again in 1 Corinthians 12. He says this in 12 through 20, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We are all different parts. Paul's metaphor of the body of Christ clearly teaches us that the church operates with diverse unity, not dictated uniformity. We are not to look the same. We are not to be cookie-cutter Christians that we are just pumping out, this is what you look like, this is what you act like, this is what you dress like, this is, a, this is what you believe now, this is all, all the things. We're not to do that. We are to be so diverse in our unity that God uses us for his glory. Therefore, no matter what gift you have, there are other people in the church that are dependent upon your gift for their functioning. Diversity. It refers to a variety in one group. Diversity is not being different. Diversity is not a term that supports immoral practice. Diversity simply talks about individual personalities. Unity refers to the collaborating harmony between a diverse group of people. Uniformity, however, means to be uniform and without differences in personality or practice or principles. The church is to be diverse, and it is to accept its diversity in order to achieve its unity. The difference between unity and uniformity is the acceptance of those differences. In fact, if a church is trying to disciple people into uniformity, then it's trying to make everyone look alike, dress alike, think alike, act alike, and that's simply what cults do. I don't want to be part of a cult. The church, however, embraces unified diversity. So when we come to church, we will look different. We will dress different. We will act different. We will talk different. We will have different personalities. We will have different passions. We will have different thoughts on things. And that's a good thing because through that diversity, we find unity. As F.F. Bruce put it, diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. It is so in nature it is so in grace, too, and nowhere more so than in the Christian community. Here are many men and women with the most diverse kinds of parentage, environment, 
temperament, and capacity. Not only so, but since they became Christians, they have been endowed by God with a great variety of spiritual gifts as well. Yet because, and by means of that diversity, all can cooperate for the good of the whole. I say all this to tell you that you have been gifted, and you are unique, and you are diverse for the purpose of God's expansion of his kingdom, so that we would be interdependent in on one another. We need one another. As he says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 13, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave, he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As you look through this, you see, as I've highlighted, we are to be with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain a unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He gave us all gifts to men to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain a unity in the faith. There is a purpose in you being diverse, and it is to bring unity to the body of Christ. The church is unified so God might be glorified. And I'll just go ahead and say it. If the church is not unified, it does not do much glorifying God in its worship. You look at a community that, that looks in at churches, and they say, oh, that church, they're, they're fighting with one another, they're arguing with one another, they're complaining about this, they're complaining about that. That's not much of a witness to God's glory, is it? But when you take a church that's so diverse and yet so unified because of Jesus Christ, the, the outside community looks in and they go, I, I don't get it. Those people are completely different, and yet they are all joined together as one body, just loving one another, serving one another, and using all the different gifts they've been given. It's a way to glorify God. So, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Colossians 1, 15-18 talks about Christ and his supremacy and it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head. 
Christ is the one that's leading the body. All the diverse parts he is, he is in control of. How does the body work? Well, let's say that you're hungry. Your stomach begins to growl, and it's because the pastor's preaching way too long, and you skipped breakfast, and you tried to get here on time for, you know, Sunday school or something, and, and now you're beginning to think, I'm hungry, and my stomach's growling, and I, I really could use some fried chicken right now. Am I, are you getting hungry? And so you begin to think these things, right? And so your mind, your, your, your stomach rumbles, and then, you know, sends a message to your mind. Your mind's like, oh, I need to go, and I need to walk over, and get something to eat, and I need to put it in my body, and I need to take care of myself. And so the mind is it's orchestrating all of this. Well, what if, what if you uh, are working out in the yard, and all of a sudden you get a scratch in your arm? You begin to bleed and begin to hurt. Your mind tells you, oh, you probably should take care of that. And so you go inside, and you, you know, clean off the wound, and you put a Band-Aid on it, and you get back to work. So the, the body works in a way that helps the parts of the body that are hurting or the parts of the body that are hungry. It's the same way with the body of Christ. The, the best way for you to grow in your relationship with God would be to come alongside and help someone else grow in their relationship with God. The best way for you to see someone who's hungry for the Lord and help feed them is to be the part of the body that comes alongside and helps, helps them know how to feed themselves with the Word of God. If you see a part of the body that is wounded and hurting, the other parts of the body should come alongside the part that's hurting and help nourish it back to health. In fact, the head of the body directs the members of the body for the care of the whole body. Does that make sense? So by God's direction through Christ, he is dictating to all the members, all the various members, how to care for the body as a whole. The church is designed to be diverse, unified, an interdependent body that cares for one another, edifies one another, and encourages one another. When God wants to care for his body, he uses other members of the body. That means that when people disconnect from the body, they are actually cutting themselves off from God's healing agent. Oftentimes, we pull away from the body. And when we pull away from the body as an individual member, we're not, we're not able to just survive by ourselves it'd be like walking through a parking lot and seeing a body part laying in the in the pavement Ooh, that's not where it's supposed to be you know that's kind of a gross analogy but could have been a true story i just won't share it with you you know like oh that's 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 supposed to be connected to something and that's kind of the idea of the body of christ like you're a body part and there's an ear laying there and you're like that ear should be on a head So, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. As you think about the humble attitude, as you think about the unification of the body of Christ, strive to excel in building up the church. And how can you do that? Be useful. Use your gifts. A living sacrifice is useful. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, 
the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this isn't all the gifts. You can find them in other areas of Scripture mentioned, and there is no one full list. But we're just going to work through the ones that we have here today. First thing I want you to see about the gifts is everyone in Christ is given a gift of grace. Everyone in Christ is given a gift of grace. Every believer has been given a gift of grace, a free gift of the Spirit, so that he or she can make a distinctive contribution to both individuals and the community of faith. You, if you are in Christ, have been given a distinct gift for the purpose of making a distinct contribution to the body of Christ. God's grace distributes diverse gifts to diverse people who use them for the unity of the body. Again, as we said, there's, as in, in Ephesians, there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is not differing levels of faith. There's not differing levels of baptism. But there are different gifts. We are to be diverse and to be used. So let us use those gifts. Ray Stedman, he gives a, a good illustration of this. He says, suppose that I had a number of electrical appliances here. I'm a toaster, an iron, an electric fan, a hair dryer, whatever. They're all designed for something different but they all need to be attached to a power source to work. He said, you, you're all going to be different. But unless you're connected to the source, to Christ, with one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, edifying one another, you're not going to be useful. As Jesus would say, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God is most glorified when we are unified and we are best unified when we are utilized god is most glorified when we are unified and we are best unified when we are utilized if we're not using our gifts we're hurting the body think about the the parable of the talents one was given five talents and when the master returned he said i've earned you five more Master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Master who delivered him two talents said, hey, I got you two more. Master said to him, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Master had given one talent. Master, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you can have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. You ought to have invested your talent at least to get some return on it. We can't hide our talent. We can't hold on to it. We can't be slothful. 
The point of the parable is that we are to use whatever God has given us for his glory and for his furthering of his kingdom because God has given each of us a gift. God is likened to a man who reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he has scattered no seed, meaning that he is aggressively seeking to expand his kingdom and he wants to use his church to do so. So we've all been given a gift. B, every gift is given for whatever God wants to do in and through his church. Let's just work through these quickly. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy throughout scripture can mean several different things. In the Old Testament, you know, it could have been speaking what God said. But that is finished now because the canon is complete. It could be, you know, telling the future of what would take place. But it most accurately refers to in the New Testament, it refers to the proclamation of God's word. It's to be able to take God's word and adequately walk through it and give the meaning behind it. Kind of like what I'm doing here today. But I'm to do it in the proportion of our faith. Meaning that what I say must be in congruence with God's word. So if anyone comes and says, let me tell you what God's word says, and it goes against what the scriptures say, then that's not done in accordance to the faith and the proportion of faith that's been given. If service in our serving this term here it just means menial, mundane activities. Just people who naturally like to do the hard work of getting in there and getting, getting their hands dirty. And just that's how I want to serve. God has equipped me to just work. This is a person who by grace of God has a natural ability to just see needs, to step in where there's needs, to serve and not need any credit whatsoever. It kind of reminds me of Chick-fil-A, you know. When you go through the line and you say, thank you, and they reply, my pleasure, right? And you're like, oh, it was your pleasure to serve me. I like that, you know? And it's just kind of that idea. Well, and those who serve, it's, man, it's my pleasure. This is how God's gifted me. This is what he's equipped me for. It's my pleasure. I, that, that, was, that was the gift that I give. That's the reward I get as well. The one who teaches in his teaching. John MacArthur has an interesting thing about this. He says the word that is used to refer to a it's used to refer to a choir director who trains a choir over a long period of rehearsals until they're able to perform. Meaning the gift of prophecy would be a one-time proclamation of Christ. But the gift of teaching is a systematic training that takes a person from one point to another. Now there are some in our church here that are they're full-time teachers, they're, they're career professionals, teachers, they've gone to school, they've mastered that ability, and that is also in the gift of teaching, but it also means that those that God has just given the opportunity to, whether it be in a small group or one-on-one -on -one discipleship, take someone and say, listen, we're going to go from point A to point B, and we're going to work through this together. Those who teach instruct those who exhort, and those who exhort come alongside. So the one who exhorts in his exhortation, so those who are being taught then need to be encouraged in what they've been taught. So there are some that just simply come alongside you and help you apply what you've been taught, what you've heard from Scripture, and then what you've been taught by the body and from Scripture. This is someone who just has a caring encouragement that just inspires you. The one who contributes in generosity. This is one who shares their positions and resources and money, both effortlessly and lavishly. It's someone who finds joy in the worship of giving. They don't need any recognition. They do it for the sake of the one who needs to be 
the recipient. Luke 21, 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw rich, the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put her two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put all she had to live on. Hebrews 13, 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how is God's love abiding in him? Matthew 6, 1-4, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The one who leads with zeal. The word for leadership literally could be translated to assist and protect in the care of others. Not necessarily someone who's great at management or administration, but one who comes and leads, encourages and cares for with zeal. Why is with zeal clarified there? Because it's easy to become discouraged in leadership. One who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy is not the same as feeling empathy or sympathy. In fact, to be merciful means to be actively compassionate and concerned about people in need. Sinclair Ferguson said, Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what can be done to restore dignity or respect to someone whose life has been broken by sin. There are some that are so gifted in coming alongside and showing mercy and getting their hands dirty in helping someone back from sin. And see, finally, I want you to see this. Everyone can discover their gift by knowing the scripture and by affirming it in activity. Know it. Study God's word. See what the gifts are. Learn. Study. Go through it. Ask God to reveal that to you. What are the gifts that you've given? But then affirm it with your passion. Let me ask you, what are you passionate about? What has God placed in your heart? What pulls your, your heartstring? What, what excites you about the kingdom of God? What work of ministry gets you pumped? What are you passionate about? What are you naturally proficient at? Gifts are affirmed by our passion, your natural or learned proficiency. What are you naturally good at? What, what things in your history and your education and your natural abilities have created you to be a person that can actually come alongside and help people in this way? What about your current placement? Where are you currently poised and positioned to serve in the two areas of your passions and your proficiencies? Take your passion, take your proficiency, and then look at the placement that God has you in, in your community, in your church, in your home, in your relationships, in your workplace, and use your gift. And finally, through persistent prayer. And maybe today that's where we end, with the thought of you saying, 
God, I need you to reveal to me your call on my life so that I can be useful for your kingdom. It's a simple prayer. Can you say that? God, I need you today to reveal to me the call that you've placed on my life so that you can use me for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom.